Today we'll conclude our Living with Margin Stewardship series, and in each message of this series, we've been trying to imagine our lives, each of us, as a field full of crops. In our first discussion, we thought of those crops as material wealth or possessions, and the scriptures reminded us that we're not to harvest to the edges of our resources. Instead, we are to leave a margin for compassion and for generosity. In our second discussion, we thought of the field and its crops as the resources we personally have been given from birth uh, to make our way in the world. Resources like social status, intelligence, talent, perseverance, and other things like that. And the scriptures reminded us not only to not harvest to the edges of our material resources, but also not to spend our lives trying to fulfill all of our ambitions. We must leave some of our wants unharvested thereby reserving a margin for contentment. In last week's discussion, we thought of the field a bit differently. We thought of the field and its crops in terms of the realm of what's possible, of what's reasonable. And most of us do our best to live within the limits of possibility. But faith in God operates outside of the realm of the possible. So in last week's discussion, we imagined living outside of the boundaries of what is reasonable when God calls us to live into a promise that God himself has made to us. So in that case, the margin for faith is not within the field, but it's outside of it. Today, I'd like us to think of the field in which we live along with its crops in terms of what is just and what is fair. Many of us believe we live in a field that is not just nor fair. Some of us think we live in a field that is very just and very fair. Most of that has to do with your experience, but we all live in a field in which this matters for us. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 to 18, delineates the boundaries of this field for the people of God. What does it mean to live within the field of justice and fairness for God? What is and is not allowable for those who seek justice in God's kingdom? The passage begins with the following phrase, you shall not render an unjust judgment. Okay, that sounds great, doesn't it? But what, what's an unjust judgment? What would constitute that from God's perspective? Well, to my reading, the rest of the passage has helped to define what God meant in this context by injustice. So here's the list. Showing partiality to the poor would be unjust. Deferring to the powerful would be unjust. Judging without righteousness, which means judging in ways that are not reflective of the law of God, would be considered unjust. Trying to get other people on my side or trying to reduce my adversary's reputation in their eyes by talking negatively about them would be unjust. Profiting by seizing the lifeblood of another person. That's a strange one, right? You ask yourself, what in the world does that mean? Well, we have a good example of this uh, in the story of Ahab and Jezebel. King Ahab had a neighbor named Naboth who had a vineyard, and Ahab wanted the vineyard. He liked the vineyard. He must have been a wine-bibber. Is that the old, I don't know, he liked, he wanted that vineyard. But he had no right or claim on it, and Naboth refused to sell it. And he was very dejected, so his wife Jezebel had a plan. We're going to trump up Naboth on some charges get some false witnesses, bring him to a court of law, get him convicted, he'll be executed, and then we can take... So the basic principle of the law 
which Ahab violated is, the person who makes the accusation is not allowed to profit from the condemnation. That would be unjust. Hating, that is, wishing or conspiring harm upon a member of my community in my heart, that would be unjust. Failing to warn my neighbor when she or he is transgressing against God's requirements, that would be unjust. Taking vengeance against someone who has harmed me would be unjust. Holding a grudge against someone who has harmed me would be unjust. Failing to care for my neighbor in the ways that I care for myself, even if that neighbor is my enemy, would be unjust. According to God's instructions through Moses, any judgment that is sourced in these sorts of behaviors or attitudes would be considered by God to be an unjust judgment and therefore a violation of the law. Just as Sabbath law limited how much the people of Israel could profit off of the land by prohibiting them from working one day every week, so God's definition of injustice in the judicial system of Israel in these verses limited the pursuit of justice in the land. To put it in the terms of our series, God was requiring the Israelites to leave a margin for God to exercise justice. So give me a moment, I'm going to try to explain what I'm trying to say there. Depending on the specific circumstances, every behavior that God called unjust could be used to secure a fair outcome. For God, justice and fairness are not the same. A just outcome is not necessarily a fair outcome in the scriptures. Fairness is a very difficult concept to manage. It's highly subjective. Like beauty, fairness is often in the eyes of the beholder. Any of you who are parents have heard your children say when you put down a rule or exercise the discipline, that's not fair. The Hebrew word for fairness or equity does not occur in this passage, but it is the word meshar. We're commended throughout the scriptures to walk in this way, before God, to walk in uprightness and equity and fairness. And several of the First Testament authors declare that God, when he judges, he judges in meshar, in fairness and in equity. However, when it comes to God's understanding of injustice, it is not simply something that falls short of fairness. That's not how God understands injustice. Well, why not? Well, meshar is unrealistic for humans. We are not capable of always being fair. Our perspectives are limited, the evidence we gather is limited, and all witnesses that might speak to crimes or offenses are imperfect and sometimes even biased. Any system of justice operated by humans will fall short of Meshar, which is fairness or equity. God calls his people not to fair judgments, but did you notice the passage? We pay attention to every single word. He calls them not to fair judgments, but to righteous judgments. So what's the difference? Well, again, according to Leviticus 19, 15 to 18, righteous judgments are these, put slightly differently. They are impartial with respect to social class, wealth, or power. They're arrived at in submission to the requirements of God's word. They are acquired without slander, without gossip, and without secretive attempts to build a preliminary consensus. They do not result in the profiting of one person at the cost of another's ability to live. They're not sourced in the hate or animosity of one person against another. They're not resulting from a failure to warn an offending party in advance. 
They're not sourced in an attempt to take vengeance on somebody. They're not sourced in an unforgiven grudge. And they do not result in a person being treated with less care than the accusing party has allotted for themselves. In these ways, God limited justice among his people. Partiality could certainly be a way to achieve fairness or equity. It could be. But God forbid it. A right result could certainly be achieved without strict adherence to God's word's requirements of two or three witnesses and other such things. And yet, for a judgment to be considered righteous, God required strict adherence to the law anyway. It is demonstrable, isn't it, that slander, gossip, and secretive plotting sometimes achieve a positive outcome. But God prohibited any such behavior. There are occasions in which suing a person to enrich one who has been wronged while sending the offender into abject poverty seems so fair. And yet God forbid any judgment that would take away a person's ability to live. It certainly seems, at least to me, that hate and unforgiveness and a thirst for vengeance can be powerful motivators to ensure that criminals receive their just deserts. And yet God called any such judgments unjust. Even more, why should we care if anybody warned a person that they were doing wrong? Wrong is wrong, isn't it? People should know better. And yet God decried any judgment that came without forewarning. And isn't it only fair that a person's dignity be taken away if their victim's dignity was taken away? And yet God required the judge to be treated as their victims themselves wished to be treated and not with respect to how the perpetrator had acted. These limits seem, at least to most of us, at the very least unnecessary and even possibly counterproductive to the seeking of justice. If, of course, we conflate justice with fairness, as so many English dictionaries do today. Why would God ask for such a wide margin to be left in the field of justice? Was it because God doesn't care about the truth? Was it because God does not care about fairness? Does he not care about equity? I don't think that's it at all. I suspect it's because like the pursuit of wealth or power or success, the pursuit of justice is fraught with peril. The Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Romans tried to explain the teachings we've been considering from Leviticus to the Christians in Rome. He wrote the following, and you'll notice now that you've read the Leviticus passage that this is what he's talking about. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You hear the echoes of Leviticus and what Paul is explaining. The peril of the thirst for justice is that we will use it as an excuse for wickedness. 
one good turn deserves another, right? Or perhaps the lesser evils of false testimony or gossip or hate or vengeance are preferable to the greater evil of a perpetrator getting away with a crime. As the 15th century Christian theologian Thomas Akempis wrote in The Imitation of Christ, of two evils, the less is always to be chosen. But perhaps we should think more like God and less like the world. In his book, Shrink, Pastor Tim Suttle has shared the following cautionary tale. Behavioral scientist and Duke professor Dan Ariely did a massive study to try and understand why some people lie, cheat, and steal. In this study, Ariely and his team went to college campuses and offered students $10 to participate in a 10-minute research project. During the project, researchers passed out a worksheet with 20 math puzzles on it to a class full of students and told them they would be paid a dollar for every puzzle they could solve in five minutes. At the end of five minutes, the students were asked to grade their own papers, walk them to a shredder in the back of the room and destroy them. Then the students would stand in line to report their number of solved puzzles to the proctor who would pay them an extra dollar for every right answer. What the students didn't know was that the shredder was rigged. It looked and sounded as though it was shredding their papers, but it was really preserving their answers so researchers could check to see if the participants were telling the truth. This is what they found. On average, students reported solving six problems when in fact they only solved four. Over the course of their research, Ariely's team tested about 30,000 people. Of those 30,000 people, they found only 12 big cheaters compared to 18,000 small cheaters. The big cheaters of 30,000 people stole a total of $150, while the small cheaters stole around $36,000, just one or two dollars at a time. Airily did this research project all over the world, in the United States, Western Europe, Turkey, Israel, China, and many other countries, and the results were always roughly the same. Airily believes that this is an accurate snapshot of how human behavior impacts society, Yes, there are some big cheaters in the world, but on the whole, there are very few of them and they make little impact. Most dishonesty happens among ordinary people who think of themselves as basically honest. When all this dishonesty is added together, it has a tremendous impact on culture. Most of the problems faced by the human race are not rooted in the lives of outliers and psychopaths, life's big cheaters. Our problems are rooted in the lives of typical, ordinary people who find ways to rationalize their own bad behavior. Ariely's research shows that rationalization lives at the heart of our problem. He says most people want to be able to do two things at once. We want to be able to think of ourselves as honest people, and we want to enjoy the benefits of dishonesty every now and then. The way we pull this off is that we find a way to rationalize our bad behavior, finding a reason to justify what we're doing. That way we can still feel good about ourselves. Pastor Suttle's illustration here seems quite appropriate to why we must leave a margin for justice. The thirst for justice and vengeance can justify the harboring of wickedness in a human heart. In fact, we might say our desire for justice has led to the rationalization of almost all of the worst evils humanity has ever committed. The wickedness of one perpetrator, if it results in the bloodlust of a community, 
can lead to the self-justified cruelty of a mob. A thousand people justifying just a little behavior that God prohibits will do far more damage than one person who deliberately violates a larger portion of God's law. How we respond to criminals does more damage typically in society than the criminals themselves. God has asked us to leave a margin for justice, not because God is against fairness, but because God knows that the thirst for justice will do much more long-term damage to a society than a single lawbreaker will. Our thirst for justice must have limits. There must be lines we will not cross, even if that means we have to let a perpetrator go free. Why would God ask this of us? Well, for Israel, as Paul repeated to the Christians of Rome, vengeance belongs to God. In other words, no one gets away with anything in the kingdom of God. We can set limits on our pursuit of justice in this world because God, if we leave the collecting of the debts to him, will be sure to see justice done eventually. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't seek justice at all. The teachings preserved for us in Leviticus 19, 15 to 18 assume that the seeking of justice will and must occur. And God gave Israel many guidelines for do, the doing of justice and the seeking of just outcomes in the scriptures. However, our thirst for justice must have limits. We must leave a margin for God's justice, lest our pursuit of justice becomes justification for wickedness in us. There is nothing worse than the sin of another becoming the sin of the many. These convictions are at the heart of both the teachings and the example of Jesus. He, did, he taught this and lived it consistently throughout his ministry. We can hear them in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he taught the following. Listen now to Jesus with these ears. You've heard that it was said, an eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That is in the law, but Jesus wants to make sure we understand the law in context, reading it all. An eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other toward him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles, do they not do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then a bit later in the same sermon, on the same theme, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. In both of these passages, Jesus was placing limits 
on his followers' pursuit of just and fair outcomes. In the final verse I just read, Jesus even echoed Leviticus' exhortation to love your offending neighbor as yourself when he said that we must not throw one who is holy to the dogs. Even more, in the story preserved in the Gospel of John of Jesus' encounter with the woman accused of of adultery, some of you remember the story, he allowed the law to limit justice in that case as well. The incident can be found in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. In that instance, a woman was accused of adultery and therefore sentenced to be stoned, which is what the law required. The Jewish leaders asked Jesus to judge the situation. Some may remember Jesus' response. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Many have thought that this means if you have any sin in your life, you can't judge another person, but that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. The covenant of Sinai required that a person could only be condemned on the testimony of two or three witnesses, and those witnesses could not be complicit in the crime. So Jesus was asking for the innocent witnesses. Okay, if she's condemned, who are the innocent witnesses who are not at the same time complicit in the same crime? And there were none. They had no witnesses. Maybe except the guy she committed adultery with. Who knows? But no innocent witnesses. So Jesus was asking and nobody came up. He was more or less saying, well, let the first witness not guilty of the same crime throw the first stone. No one came forward because there were no such witnesses. And by the law of Moses, therefore, she could not be condemned. Now, was that just? Was it fair? Well, yes and no. You remember what Jesus said to her. He said, go and sin no more. And that means that Jesus knew the charges to be true. But even Jesus refused to pass judgment without two or three witnesses. The Jewish leaders' thirst for justice led them to justify breaking the covenant of Sinai to achieve it. Jesus allowed the teachings of God to limit the attainment of justice, just as God had commanded through Moses. Will the adulterous woman be considered innocent at the final judgment? Because that's different. And I don't know. That'll be a decision of God on that day. I would guess that it would have a lot to do with how she responded to Jesus' mercy and his command to her to go and sin no more. The final judgment at the end, that won't require any human witnesses. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will be the two or three witnesses and all that are needed. But Jesus came first to warn us that we were going wrong. And did you notice that's in Leviticus 19 too? It's unjust to condemn a person if they were not first warned. So Jesus came first to warn us, so that when judgment does come at the end, humanity can no longer claim to have not known what God expected. We must never allow our thirst for justice to justify rebellion against God's teachings. In the pursuit of justice, we must never behave in ways that violate the character and the virtue that God requires of citizens of his kingdom. We must leave a margin for God's justice, And sometimes that means that the punishment of the wicked will be delayed. But we who hope in Jesus know that justice delayed is not the same as injustice. We must, as both Jesus and Paul have exhorted us, leave room for God's vengeance. Only then will we find ourselves to be true followers of Jesus, not just uh, in principle, but in actual fact. 
As Proverbs chapter 24, and we'll conclude with this, verses 17 to 20 reminds the people of God. Hear hear these words. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart rejoice when he stumbles. Otherwise, the Lord will see and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. Do not get upset because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked, for there will be no future for the evil person. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Do we believe this? And if so, then we must leave a margin for justice. Amen.